Hello and welcome to the Love Your Library podcast. I'm Craig Saunders, here with a slightly shorter episode today. I'm joined by Rachel Hall, who talks to us about her unmissable new novel, One Moonlit Night, which is sure to be a hit with our members. You'll find the link to reserve the book at your local library and in the show notes of this episode. So without any further ado, let's hear from Rachel. Norwich, May 1934. Maddie was sure she'd seen the stranger a few weeks before. She'd been standing dreamily at her bedroom window when he had walked past the house. He had glanced up and their eyes had met briefly. Later, he claimed not to remember this. This Thursday afternoon, it was quiet in the museum and Maddie had the gallery to herself. She sat on the folding stool with her sketchbook on her knee and studied the dog fox closely through the glass case. Its pelt was as bright as it must have been in life, though she noticed that the individual hairs were different shades of cream and grey, ginger and red, and altogether they imprisoned the light to a vibrant effect. The fox was long and lean, with a magnificent brush, its green glass eyes alert, and she wondered how the taxidermist had made it appear unaware that it was dead. She hoped this was because it had died cleanly, a quick bullet to the skull perhaps, rather than after a terrifying pursuit by hounds. She held her pencil poised above the page for a moment, allowing a sense of the creature to enter her, then swiftly she began to sketch. So absorbed was she in her work that it was a long while before she broke off, realising that someone was watching her from a few feet away. She glanced up warily, and there he was, a youngish man in a cream-coloured suit, pale-skinned, his hair and moustache only a shade darker than the fox's. His eyes, with their long, dark lashes, held hers. Then he smiled and cleared his throat. I I didn't mean to disturb you. I was admiring your skill. His voice sounded low and musical in the quietness of the room. Thank you, Maddie said, angling the sketchbook away from his gaze. But I'm afraid I can't work with someone watching. She waited for him to apologise and move on, but he did neither. Don't mind me, I promise not to look. I came to see the polar bear, if he's still there, the one wrestling the seal. I last visited when I was a boy and I couldn't take my eyes off him. The polar bear is in with the zoo animals, she pointed with her pencil to the arch that divided the gallery in two. Of course, he walked into the next room and Maddie returned to her work. So hello, Rachel. We are delighted to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Craig. I'm glad to be here. So we would have just heard your excerpt there from One Moonlit Night. Can you just tell us a little bit about the book? Yes, it's my lockdown book in the sense that I was writing it at a time when we couldn't go and look at places, um, do the usual kinds of writerly research. So I chose a local subject. I live in Norfolk to set the book with parts in wartime France, which is a subject that I've researched quite thoroughly in the past. So One Moonlit Night is set in at the beginning of 1941, when Maddie and her two young daughters have been bombed out in London and are having to stay with a neighbour. And they decide to go and evacuate themselves, I suppose, to a house in the country that was the one where her husband was brought up 
And we learn very quickly that Maddie's husband is missing in action in France somewhere. And the general consensus seems to be that he's dead. So the story is about Maddie settling herself amongst her in-laws, who she's never met before, and trying to bring her children up in wartime on this farm in Norfolk, whilst she's also grieving for her husband. And a parallel story is we learn what has happened to her husband. So, Rachel... One Moonlit Night is set around 1940s and those particular years of wartime. Was there any reason why you decided to concentrate on that particular time? It was because of the events in the war that I planned to encapsulate. One of them was the fact that it was still the Blitz, which was from September 1940 until about March 1941. So if Maddie's house was going to be bombed, then it was fairly likely that it was going to be then, although of course there were plenty of other bombing raids outside those years. The other thing is as to what had happened to Philip. Well, Philip disappeared after Dunkirk when the British expeditionary forces were defeated and then France was beaten and occupied by the Nazis. So it seemed just about right that, you know, he had been missing for um, many months and that that had been the setting for his disappearance. Also, that time, 1941, there was very much the feeling that they were set in to have a long war, that Britain felt very much alone because it wasn't yet Pearl Harbour with the Americans joining in. So there was this atmosphere of just getting on with it, grimly gritting your teeth, not knowing what was going to happen. Rationing was biting. It was, it was a particularly grim time. As you kind of alluded to there, the bulk of the story is set in the early 1940s, but the timeline does move around from the 1970s, is bookended at the start and the end of the novel, um, mm -hmm. and then also earlier in the 1930s, which is fascinating as a reader because it does move around, not in chronological order. Is there a reason that you chose that style for this novel and to tell the particular story of One Moonlit Night? Well, it's two things really about the book ending of the main story by giving you a prologue and an epilogue in the 1970s. One is that it's a useful storytelling device. You know, you read the prologue and you think that sounds really exciting and wonder what the secret is. And then, you know, you deliver part of the secret right at the end. But the other is I'm always fascinated as to what happens to the characters in a book, what their stories are after the story finishes. So this gives you a little glimpse, if you like, of what the characters have grown into, what the children have grown into, you know, how they've managed to deal with the problems that are still not solved at the end of the main story. The other thing, of course, is during the main narrative, you're occasionally having to dive back into the past because that's where the mystery of Philip's own family life lies. And again, you're getting glimpses of him particularly in terms of old letters and that sort of thing. But we also needed to understand how Maddie and Philip met in the first place. And also, I think, to give us a real glimpse as to how happy their marriage had been and that in order for Maddie to withstand what happens after her husband disappears, we have to understand that this really was a deep love between them. And so we understand why she is so stalwart. 
In terms of inspiring you for this story, I was reading up on you and your story into becoming an author. And as you mentioned, this is predominantly set between London and Norwich. And you moved from London to Norwich, didn't you? So was that the inspiration for having those two locations? Well, I've quite often written about women moving from one place to another. And in fact, my first novel, The Dream House, was just that, but not moving to Norwich. It was about a young professional woman who moves with her family from London to Southwold in Suffolk, which is one of my very favourite places. And I suppose one of my main themes is the one of belonging and about searching for where you feel at home. And it's also a jolly good way of of beginning a story of going to a new place and quite often finding yourself in it, finding a way forward for yourself. But you're right in that there are echoes of my real life in One Moonlit Night in that sense. And you touch upon those themes that you wanted to touch on when you started the process for One Moonlit Night, which, as you say, was in lockdown, which was a fascinating period for everyone, I think. Did you always know that you were going to concentrate on those themes or did they develop as you started writing the story and exploring the characters, as you say, particularly of Maddie and Philip? As you explored those characters, was that when those themes came to the fore in the story? I think what started off this book for me was the question in my mind that I was turning over that um, quite often when you meet your future intended and you get married and you have children and you are incredibly intimate at all levels, in fact, unless you've been childhood sweethearts, you don't actually know very much about the person that you've married. And in Philip's case, although Maddie knows some basic facts, she doesn't know the kind of things that he actually experienced as a child, how he was sent back away from his parents who lived in India was sent back home to go to boarding school at an incredibly young age and was then billeted on his grandmother and his very strange aunt in the remote Norfolk countryside. That's where he had to spend the school holidays. And Maddie, once she moves to his old home here, she finds herself on a quest to find out what her husband was like, what he was like as a child, what happened to him, what were the nature of his relationships with his cousin Lyle and the strange aunt and the dead grandmother. And she uncovers a secret that she realises actually explains a great deal about his personality and his behaviour. So it was that thought of what was he like before I met him? As you say, it's essentially a love story with lots of different themes thrown in there. When you are writing and beginning your writing process, is that something that is crystal clear when you start out writing any particular story? Or is it much more fluid? So for this story, you said you've had that idea which formed, but how would you usually start off your writing process more generally? Well, I had the first proper scene in my head, which was the morning after the bomb had hit. That was very clear. That was very easy to write, even though I then went on to rewrite it about a dozen times. That sort of set everything off, if you like. Had I got in mind where it was all going to go? Well, no, my trouble is that I'm not enough of a planner I knew that there was going to be some secret from the past that was going to be uncovered. I knew I wanted this feeling of Maddie arriving amongst strangers and uh, having to remake her life and make her little girls feel at home. 
But beyond that, I haven't actually <laughs> worked out any of the details at all. So in fact, I think that along with my readers, I, w- I was discovering things as I went along. And sometimes this ended up with me painting myself into a corner or realising that there was a whole side of something that I hadn't sufficiently explored and I would then have to go back and rework things. So I was a little bit cross with myself for for having done that. But on the other hand, it's quite a delicious feeling when you get to the end and you realise that the whole project has finally worked. You know, while you're doing it, you feel like a tightrope walker that is having to feel along with your toes every inch of the way and uh, hoping you're not going to fall. But it is brilliant reaching the other end of the tightrope. Definitely. And one of the things I really enjoyed was the dynamics between the characters. And like you say, Maddie realising that actually how well did she know Philip when all of a sudden he's disappeared and not sure where he is and integrating with other members of family that maybe knew Philip better than maybe she did and finding out through those other characters through the relationship with them. I found that fascinating as a concept to explore as part of the story. Yeah, when you meet your other half's family for the first time, it's slightly scary, but also a rather fascinating experience, you know, to see these other people who look a bit like your husband and sound a bit like them and share his jokes and all this sort of thing. But they're not him. And in one particular case, Lyle, who is Philip's cousin, it is almost a sort of mirror image of him in the sense that I don't mean that he looks exactly like Philip. He looks a little bit like Philip, which is very unsettling. For, for someone who's lost their husband. But also, you know, he has some of the good points that Philip doesn't have. And Philip has some of the good points that Lyle definitely doesn't have. So I quite liked exploring that idea that, you know, when she was engaging with this rather gorgeous cousin, she's very conflicted as to her feelings about him. And also it makes her examine her relationship, her marriage more closely. Another thing I really liked, as you progressed through the book, you included notes and letters to really add to that story arc. And so you include those as passages in the chapters. Why did you choose to do that? Because I really enjoyed that as as a reader. It kind of gives you a sense that you're maybe you're finding out some information that you maybe shouldn't be because it's, you know, letters, notes are very personal. And certainly at that period, as a form of communication, they tended to be, you know, very personal one to one. So as a reader, it feels like maybe you're reading something that's a bit personal personal between two of the characters. So why did you choose to include that throughout the book? Maddie has the role in the book of the person who is uncovering things. We're seeing the story through her eyes. So she's very much an active protagonist. And it's the device I use that, for instance, she finds this cache of letters that Philip had hidden in the house in his bedroom underneath his bed. And so she does read all these quite intimate letters between him and his parents. She also finds in a bookcase a book of poetry in which there's a postcard, which has obviously been written by Philip to a young woman she doesn't know. And that also offers her a view of her husband that she hadn't ever considered before, his teenage loves, I suppose. And I liked the idea of her being, if you like, permitted to have that kind of insight. It's a fairly frequent thing that if somebody actually dies, 
then you do suddenly have access to all their papers and so on. And quite often you feel justified in, in looking at these things because the other person is, is dead, I suppose. It's all out in the open. So although I have her sometimes feeling slightly guilty for having a peek, she also feels quite justified in doing so. And I also loved the idea of different voices coming into the book. And the young Philip, of course, is a slightly different voice from the grown-up Philip or the Philip in France. And again, I like that idea that we get to know people through fragments. We can never say that we entirely know another person. And quite often what we're seeing is fragments of them, which our brain adds up into a whole. But that may not be the truthful whole. Well, exactly. And especially when, as you say, in One Moonlit Night, when the character of Maddie is reading all these letters, obviously there's no one necessarily to respond to this information in terms of Philip to respond to what she's reading. So again, she's creating a picture of him, as you say, from those letters, which is different to the vision and the character she had before that. Yes, that's right. Philip is hes a military man, well-educated, but not studious kind of educated. He's active. He's got a good job in buying and selling tea and so on. Although he's a sensitive man, he's also a very active man who's got a good front, if you like. He presents well. So glimpsing all these more vulnerable sides of him through reading his childhood letters is, I think, something that helps the reader understand, you know, the kind of person that he is underneath. Moving on now, another thing we do when we're getting ready for the podcast is like to find out a bit about the author. And I have to say, you have had an absolutely fascinating journey from Hong Kong right at the start to Norfolk, where you are now. Can you tell me a little bit about what inspired you to start writing right at the very start? Because I know it's a lifelong passion for you, isn't it? Yes, I've never actually before my 40s thought that I would be able to sit down and write a novel. I'd always loved what we call composition at school, which is now called creative writing. And I read voraciously and I ended up after university working in publishing, publishing fiction particularly, which I absolutely loved. But it wasn't until I left that world behind and we moved as a family to Norfolk and I had to start casting around to see what else I could do with my life apart from raising three children, which occupied quite a bit of time. And um, writing was something that I started just to see what would happen, really. I'd got an idea, perhaps I would attempt a, a short story for a women's magazine. But then ideas came to me, which made me think I could attempt something bigger. I'd spent a lot of my time in publishing working with authors on their books, advising them on things like structure, story structure, and giving them feedback on all the different aspects of writing fiction characterization and setting and so forth. And so I knew a bit about what the task was. It's just that I had never actually done it myself. <laughs> and after some fits and starts, I did manage to complete a novel which did in fact get published. So I sort of feel a bit of an imposter in that very many writers started seriously writing, you know, when they were children or teenagers, and that just simply didn't happen to me. I think the kind of upbringing I had, it never actually occurred to me that somebody like me could be a writer, a novelist, never, never occurred to me as a possible career path. 
reading about your journey and you mentioned there your time as an assistant editor senior editor for a publishing company did that have an influence on how you approach your topics or when you have an idea how you bring that to fruition well one of the very important things is i i knew what was likely to appeal to editors and readers and it was fortunately the kind of book that i wanted to write which is you know a woman's relationship story that was also about family but that it had an interesting page turning story that wasn't just about the relationships so i combined it with mystery not crime mystery but you know finding out secrets from the past family secrets so i was able to write precisely what i wanted to write about but also in a way that i knew had a chance of being published my approach was to make sure i wrote a book that was of the kind of book that would have appealed to editors and readers but the big question of course was yes i tried to do this but was it actually any good well my readers can be the judge of that but it was taken on by a publisher and in fact i've been very lucky because i've had the same publisher all the way through which these days is quite unusual I think as well, just reading some of the comments that people have made about your work and from reviewers and people that have read your novels is fantastic. And I think I will have a lot of listeners to the podcast that are writers in their spare time or they write as a hobby. And I think it's a real, as I say, your journey into writing is actually, you know, a real inspiration to a lot of people that like yourself maybe thought, can I do it? Can I do it? So to have achieved what you have achieved in a, a relatively short space of time in terms of, as you say, having a whole life and career before you became uh, an author, I think is a fascinating and a really interesting story in itself. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I hope it will um, encourage people who are slightly older, you know, who think, oh, I've missed my chance and so on, because no, you haven't missed your chance. And in fact, you know, when you've had years and years of experience of life, and you've got more to write about, haven't you? And I think also you've got a little bit more of a distance, a kind of cold eye, which you sometimes need for your material in order to put the kind of framing on it that means that you can make a judgment on what's going on. Whereas if you write about something that you're in the middle of, sometimes you haven't got that perspective. That's the word I was looking for. And I suppose the other thing is that I was also doing it because I enjoyed it. I wanted to spend some time to myself just writing and being alone with the characters and seeing what came. And I got an enormous pleasure from that. In terms of the writers that have influenced you and inspired you yourself, is there anyone particularly that stands out in terms of really being a kind of an inspiration to you? Becoming well, I'm, an author? I'm often asked this question and sometimes I come up with different authors, really. The thing is that I am always reading and I read in all sorts of genres. I predominantly read fiction, but I also read quite a bit of narrative nonfiction. And I suppose I find all the time that my mind is questioning what I'm reading and noticing how authors write, what's effective, what's not effective, what's downright boring, what's exciting, the way some writers do these wonderful narrative twists. It's a constant response to what one is reading. And I always give this as the single piece of advice to a new writer to read. 
So it's not necessarily one or two particular writers. There's one writer I used to read when I was a teenager who is, most people haven't heard of anymore, and that's Elizabeth Googe. And she was a hugely popular writer in the sort of 30s and 40s and 50s. And she could write wonderfully emotive books about family relationships and stories about families going back through the generations. And I used to wish that I could just meet some of her families and be a part of everything that was going on because it was all so vivid and warm and all seemed so important somehow. But those were the days when, you know, you had school holidays and you could just curl up in the summer holidays on your bed with a packet of sweets and just read and read and lose yourself in books in a way that is probably very difficult to do once you're an adult. I know reading about you and your journey, uh, you said that when you lived in Hong Kong, you used to get packages of books and you'd receive them and voraciously get through them all and read them all. In terms of libraries, what influence have libraries played in your journey as an author and then as a reader? Huge, really, because I always have belonged to libraries. I can't remember what happened in Hong Kong. I was there between the ages of five and eight. So I can only remember these packages of books arriving from my grandmother in England, you know, Black Beauty and the Narnia books and so forth, and reading and reading. But I definitely, once I got back to England when I was eight, we joined the Ewell Library in Surrey, and I used to go regularly, and I can just remember the pleasure of going through the bookshelves of you know hundreds and hundreds of books and just trying things really and then the joy once you found a book of a new author that you really enjoyed of reading all the others by that author and it was very hit and miss but it was the freedom really that was wonderful and then you know gradually having the courage to go and look in the adult section and borrowing books from there but I've always belonged to libraries since and encouraged the children to borrow from libraries. And in fact, I have an academic librarian as a son, so it's going down through the family. <laughs> well, as we wind down now, it's been absolutely lovely to chat to you. It's been wonderful to chat about One Moonlit Night, but also about your story and about your journey in writing, how you work. And we always like to ask our authors a little bit about what they're up to next. So if you're able to give us any sneak peeks about what's coming up for you, fire away. Well, I'm 30,000 words into a new novel, which is another wartime story, but with a strand that's set in the mid-60s as well. And it's mostly set in Cornwall, which I've also written about in The Memory Garden and in A Gathering Storm, because my father was Cornish and I had a very romantic relationship with Cornwall when I was a child growing up, when we visited there to see family and so on. And it's always been a very special place for me. So we're going down, my husband and I, to Cornwall in a couple of weeks' time so I can do some research. And he keeps saying, when we go on holiday to Cornwall, I said, we're not going on holiday. This is a research trip. I'm going to the Cornish record office and, you know, I'm going to check out settings for details and, you know. But yes, that is a pleasure going to do research, definitely. And it's going quite well. I've got to the point now where I know what the trajectories of the different characters are and I can see where it's going, which is a relief. Well, we wish you all the best for Cornwall. And especially when you go and have your research trip down there, we're going to be hoping it's lovely weather for you as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us. We really appreciate it. Rachel Hall, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you.